you have your Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verse 21 through 34 this morning. We're walking through Mark's gospel and uh, studying the life and ministry of Jesus. And so far we've seen that Jesus is uh, a qualified Messiah. He's the one sent from God. Uh, to initiate salvation for God's people, something you and I could have never done on our own. We've also seen that Mark describes Jesus as a faithful son. Uh, Unlike you and me, he lives on this earth in perfect obedience to his Father in heaven. Last week, we saw this concept of Jesus as the king and his kingdom and our tendency often to try to pull the crown off Jesus's head and place it on our own. You'll remember in the conclusion of our study last week that Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him as disciples. And so the passage that we're about to read is basically the next day. They walk into Capernaum on the Sabbath day and they are going to learn, as you and I are, about the authority of Jesus in several ways. So we pick up at verse 21 in chapter 1 and we'll read through verse 34. And as we do this, I'll remind you, we believe the Bible is God's word written. It's the only infallible rule for faith and practice. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned them among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately... Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Our God in heaven, even as Jesus spoke with authority in the synagogue on that day, we ask that you would, through the ministry of your spirit, speak with that same authority so that your word would stand over us with both comfort and conviction. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to your people. And I pray that you would be willing again to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to just begin by giving you kind of a quick snapshot of this city, Capernaum, what it is. Um, It's not something you and I would generally know of. It sits on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, up sort of near the area where Jesus was raised, up near Nazareth. It's at the time of Jesus's uh, stroll on that Sabbath day. It's probably a town of about 10,000 people. Um, 
And we do know that Peter and Andrew both live in that town uh, in a house that would be small by our standards. James and John, who are actually from Bethsaida, are probably living in Capernaum about the same time. Now, here's what most of us don't know about Capernaum, and that is that when Jesus left Nazareth from his childhood home, he went to Capernaum, and most of his ministry of the three years that we read in the Gospels is, uh, in a sense, Capernaum is his home base. And so, we were, um, I can see, I think, here why Jesus would begin this public ministry in this place. I can sort of imagine Peter. You remember Peter is Mark's main source. Peter's telling Mark about this some years later, and he says, listen, the first day we were walking with Jesus, we went into Capernaum immediately. We ran smack dab into a world that was deeply fallen. Like the, the people who should have spiritually had some scent, the sense about them were asleep because they'd been listening to irrelevant babble for years. We encountered evil. It was overt. It was right in our face. A man who had been demon-possessed, basically enslaved in mind and heart and body, stood up against Jesus. Then we went across the street to my house where my mother-in-law is burning up with fever. She's deteriorating in an illness. My sweet wife is overwhelmed, and I stroll up with my brother and three friends. And you get the sense that Peter speaks through the pen of Mark really to tell us how Jesus walks into this fallen world. A world that was really overrun in the same way that your world is overrun. It's actually deeply comforting if you realize what's going on here. That is that Jesus walked into a world that had no spiritual clarity much like the world that you live in. He walked into a world where evil really does oppose good, and it really was in your face, much like the world in which you live. He walked into a world in which people were sick, and they suffer, and they die, in a world that had no answer for pain and heartache, very much like the world in which you live. And so you read this passage, and you get the sense that Mark is saying it was into that that Jesus walked into Capernaum with authority on that day. Into a place that was cold and full of sorrow, Jesus enters with willingness and power, with ability and influence and determination. And as humble as it is, it is as if the king says, I have authority over this spot and this spot and this spot, all the kind of spots that you and I walk through. Now, some of us hear the word authority, and we might begin to twitch a little bit. Because somewhere deep down, nobody likes to have to be told what to do. But we should be clear what kind of authority we encounter here. And that is that for those who belong to Christ, the authority that God gives here provides both comfort and conviction. It's, it's not just the fact that Jesus possesses authority, but really what Mark is telling us is that Jesus exercises authority in the midst of a fallen world, in the kind of world in which you and I live, into the kind of things that you would have experienced this last week. And I'm talking about the kind of things that made you cry. 
The kind of things that made you scream with anger over the kind of things that made you frustrated and made you feel hopeless. Jesus exercises authority into the kind of world that broke your heart. And Mark says, let me show you a day in the life of Jesus so that you'll learn to humble yourself under the authority of Christ. And so this morning we're going to break down the passage with three points. What Jesus says, and then secondly, what Jesus tears down, and then Thirdly, what Jesus lifts up. What Jesus says, it's really in verse 21 and 22, but I want to begin by explaining the difference between a synagogue and a temple. Uh, And that is because we read the word synagogue a lot in the Bible. The temple in Jesus' day, there's only one, and that is in Jerusalem. It's the, the place with the outer court, and then the holy place, and then the most holy place. Uh, the temple is the spot where the high priest goes in once a year and sprinkles blood on behalf of the people of the nation of Israel. Synagogues are actually scattered in various parts of the nation of Israel, but even further than that. Because Jews were scattered in various parts, so synagogues could be in lots of parts of the Roman Empire. You might think of it like a blending of your local church and a meeting hall and a library, kind of all rolled into one spot. And in each synagogue, there would have been a synagogue ruler. And the synagogue ruler is a person who takes care of the scrolls. He also keeps up the building itself. Uh, He would have made the decisions on the things that were going to be read that Sunday, the prayers, the songs, everything for that particular Sabbath day. But to be clear, the synagogue ruler is not the person who's going to teach on that day. He would have arranged a system of laymen, uh, maybe even some rabbis in the area to come and speak. So why am I telling you all this? Because if you read in the New Testament and you recognize that the Apostle Paul goes from town to town to town, he goes always to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. Why is he doing that? Well, here's a spot where people would like to hear the message of the Old Testament spoken on. Well, what the Apostle Paul does is he speaks on the Old Testament and says it's pointing to Christ. And sometimes, of course, in the towns he's received and other times he's not. So when we come to this passage, we have to recognize that the reason that Jesus is there on that day is probably that this synagogue ruler has heard Jesus speak somewhere around the area of Galilee. And so he was invited on this day. Now, Mark doesn't spend any time telling us the gist of the message of what Jesus said. The reason he doesn't tell us that is because he basically summarized it back in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's basically a summary of Jesus' message at this point in his ministry. But you notice that Mark is more interested in how Jesus' message is received than on what he said. Look at verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In fact, the the, the heart of this is that the people who heard him were actually alarmed. They were dumbfounded, as one writer said. They were literally struck to their senses with both amazement and wonder. And here's the reason. Because scribes were basically uh, the intellectual scholars of their day. They were academics. 
And so when you've heard of them called rabbi, we think, well, rabbi must mean teacher. It doesn't just mean teacher. It really means exalted teacher. So it, you, you should think of an academic, a scholar who comes and he gives a lecture on the Sabbath day with all the pomp and arrogance of somebody who's being told he's great. That's what you need to think of. He's also something like a, a lawyer. No offense, offense to our friends who are lawyers, but in fact, what he would do in those days would be to settle the disputes based on the Old Testament law. And so people might go to him to handle given situations. So here's why I say all that. If you were to be in this synagogue on the Sabbath day, they were used to hearing this kind of thing. Well, Rabbi Ben Hadid says this. Rabbi Ben Ami says that. And so therefore our fathers have traditionally lived this out in this way. We should walk no more than 200 paces on the Sabbath day. You can imagine that there was nothing that warmed their hearts in the least. And then Jesus steps into the synagogue and he says, the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn your heart to the Lord with repentance and believe upon the Lord for his goodness. And so Jesus speaks not only of an opportunity for them to decide, but he also speaks of a God who has now moved toward them in power, in a sense to compel their, their decision. Friends, I'm talking about people who've lived in a world of black and white television and suddenly HDTV is turned on in their face and it's crystal clear, but it's also deeply disturbing. You remember the idea of fishers of men that I talked about last week from chapter one, verse 17. That's really what Jesus is teaching. But this is the moment to flee the judgment that your sins deserve. Repent and believe that the Father in heaven is actually a Father who's merciful and gracious and ready to receive you. But no matter what you do with my words, Jesus would have said, there is absolutely no way that you can miss this. God has an absolute claim on your whole being which is why I say that Jesus actually sounds so much more like an Old Testament prophet than he sounds like a, a scribe. Boring. Here's the point. See, if you and I were in Capernaum in this synagogue on that day, you could have been offended by Jesus. You could have been threatened by Jesus. You could have been comforted by Jesus, but you could not be indifferent to Jesus. In fact, he strikes them with such authority, stuff they've never heard. It makes me wonder, though, if this kind of voice of authority is the voice that you still hear when God's Word speaks to you. Do you hear it and read it and study it as if it's a challenging, comforting, convicting, but also satisfying voice of authority? And if not, maybe you need to start here today. What I'm saying is, does the word of God actually have a, a different place in your life from every other voice? And there are so many competing voices. Has your heart grown cold to the preaching of the word? 
Or are you in a season of your life where you're somewhat distant from the Bible, somewhat different, distant from personal reading and study? Well, the truth is that a, a single weekly sermon could never be enough to nourish you spiritually throughout your week. And so you need more of God's word in your own life. You need more reading and more prayer and more spiritual conversations and friends who love the Lord and would encourage you to, to walk toward the Father who loves you. Here's what accidentally happens if we do not surround ourselves with this. We, we begin to allow the voices out in the world to become the authority in our own lives so that what somebody else is wearing or what somebody says you should be interested in becomes the thing that is the most compelling. So that the world gets to tell us those things that matter most deeply and we go, I don't even remember what really matters most deeply. See, other voices are actually pouring into you saying, look over here. And oh, by the way, you're so busy. You don't even have time to pray. You don't have time to bend your heart to the Lord. You actually want to make your own decisions anyway. What Jesus says is so crystal clear that he's basically confronting the people with a decision. That is to humble themselves under the authority of Jesus' word or to refuse it. But he gives you no option for indifference. It's slightly frightening, actually, that with so many voices speaking to you, that your heart can easily grow indifferent to the Lord and his authority. That's worth noticing. Humble yourself under the authority of Christ. So we've seen what Jesus says. Now let's take a look at what Jesus tears down. I want you to picture the fact that Jesus' words are really hanging in the air in the synagogue on that day. And the crowd is astonished because he's speaking as if he has been actually commissioned by God, which he has. And then it's classic Mark to turn to verse 23. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. To be clear, first of all, the demon has it exactly right. Have you come to destroy us, plural, as in, have you come to destroy the forces of evil? And 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yep. It's exactly why he's there. But you should probably read the Gospels and go, wait a second, I don't actually see demon possession around. Why is it so frequent in the Bible? Well, number one, just because you do not see the works of evil doesn't mean that they are not present. In fact, it surely doesn't mean that Satan has retired from his work. Uh, you should also think this way, that with thousands of years of deception under his belt, the evil one is really smart. And he uses methods that would seem effective in a time and place to accomplish his goals. And he uses other methods in other times and places to accomplish his goal. In every case, though, his goal is to wreak havoc on God's people and on the creation. In fact, after you leave the, the, the Gospels, Demon possession becomes more rare in the scriptures, which brings me to the third thing. Why in the world don't we see this all the time? Well, the forces of evil, Satan and the demons, seem to ramp up 
their efforts while Jesus is on the earth. And, it, and naturally that makes sense to us, doesn't it? This is the one moment in all of human history when the invulnerable God becomes vulnerable. And then, of course, when the powerful creator condescends to take on all the temptations and the trials which are common to men. This is actually the moment. If you're ever going to see the forces of evil happen on God, this is it. There's another thing, though, and that's this. The incarnation, meaning God putting on flesh, is actually God taking the fight directly to Satan's backyard. And so all the commentators who study not only this particular issue of demon possession, but the rest in the Gospels notice that the demons always cry out as if they are being attacked. They are the ones who are on the defensive. That's why they try to call Jesus by name in this particular text. Because in the ancient world, it was thought that you could gain mastery over a being or a spirit by simply declaring the precise name. Does that seem odd to you? Well, parents, you've probably practiced this same technique. Cookie jar is missing, and there's a moment where mom and dad go walking through the house. Tommy, where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Where are the cookies? And it really doesn't take long before you shift from Tommy, where are the cookies, to Thomas James Russell, get out here now. As a sense, you are gaining mastery over them in fact you notice don't you that the evil one is trying to do that because jesus has walked into this fallen world look at verse 25 jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him Listen, uh, you're going, I don't know anybody who's demon-possessed. And then I should point out that this matters on three different levels. Number one, this is actually meant to help us see God's power and authority over evil. It's proof of God's final justice over Satan. Jesus came to strip the evil one of his power. And you notice that for Jesus, this is not hard at all. The demon screeches, it convulses, it cries like a child in a temper tantrum, and Jesus says, silence. And the very demons of hell obey his command. My sweet dog, Muggsy, does not obey with this kind of clarity. which is actually meant to give us some measure of comfort. My Christ is so powerful over evil that he speaks and it must obey. I guess I wonder if some of you need to hear this today because I suspect that some of you are looking out into a world and you feel at least some measure of hopelessness. I mean, somewhere deep down you say, well, I know that God's going to win eventually, but in this world it's so dark and, and, and my kids are attacked and it's hard to see a bright spot. Maybe others of you are, are dabbling in the evil itself right now and you keep looking at this temptation as if it's not something that you could ever get out of. 
And even though you look back and you say, well, I, I think I remember believing that God can forgive me of my sins. I'm, I'm looking right now and the evil is so pressing and so powerful that it seems way over my head as if I'm drowning. It's just too evil and I'm too far gone. Others of you may feel some measure of fear. Because at this spot, in this time, in your own life, you're being tempted to cave into what you know is evil. And it's really so close every day that over time you begin to feel harassed and buffeted and tired. And this is a passage that says wherever you feel that sense of evil, you should see Jesus tears it down with a single word silence first john 4 4 little children you're from god and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world if you want to see why this matters you need to see it on another level also and that is that a man is freed from the enslaving power of hell we have no idea how this demon possessed this man or why I would tell you as believers, I'd just call this like a quick side pastoral comment. It is clear in the Bible that those who are already saved from their sins through faith in Christ cannot be possessed of a demon because they are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And yet you should recognize the beauty of the fact that somebody's dad or brother or friend or husband was gripped in mind and body and soul and he was being tormented to the point of self-destruction. And so here's the profound, profound comfort of the authority of Jesus. He speaks this word of victory. So much so that maybe some of you need to cling to this with hope today. Not that you have family or friends who are actually possessed of a demon but evil presses hard on those you love. And so I would just say, continue to pray. Continue to ask for the Lord's help for your loved one, for your friend. Jesus is the lone voice of authority capable of breaking what Satan seeks to enslave. If you want to see why this matters, you need to see it at a third level as well. When it comes to the person and authority of Christ, do you know at least as much as the demons of hell? What I mean is, do you know Jesus as the Holy One of God who has been sent to destroy the works of Satan? Do you know Him as the one that you must obey with silence? Do you? And then you know, of course, that you cannot pretend indifference over the Christ whom even the demons fear. Surely if Jesus can speak with authority over Satan, he speaks with authority and tenderness to you, his saints. Humble yourself under the authority of Christ. You start to get a sense of what Jesus came to do. To speak the simple gospel of hope, to tear down the works of evil, but also finally look at what Jesus lifts up. It's verse 29. 
Immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve him. It's basically just across the street in the synagogue. This encounter is tense. You come across the street to this house and it's tender. It's so unlike the spectacle with the demon. This is unpretentious. There's no show, not even a word. Jesus simply walks over to the bedside of Peter's mother-in-law. He reaches down, grabs her by the hand, and lifts her up. And this is a word, lifts up, which can also be translated, raised her up. And so in Mark chapter 9, it's, a, it's the same word that's going to be used for a boy who is possessed of a demon. And then later in the book of Acts, it's the same word that is used for someone who is raised from the dead. So the idea of raising or lifting up, is a, it's actually a massive part of what Jesus came to do. That is to lift up what has been torn down by this fallen world. And Mark says, this is what Christ was, was like in real life. He came to exercise authority over the most personal and painful, heart-wrenching places of the fallen world. And you go, really? It's just a fever. And we say, there's no Tylenol, there's no Advil, and these people actually die from fevers in this day. Paul Tripp, preaching on this same passage, says that this tiny miracle proves that God's people are loved by a Redeemer who cares about the details of your life, who cares about what you face, who cares about what grieves you, what causes your heart to break and causes you to fear. And your Redeemer cannot turn a deaf ear when you cry out to Him. Every single encounter in this passage from the early morning to the late night when people are crowding at the door shows us Christ in the real places with real people who face real issues, all of which are a result of the fall of man. Let me be super clear. Christianity is actually the only religion with a satisfactory answer to the problem of pain. That is, Christianity says this is actually not the way it was designed originally. You were created with an immortal soul, and the fact that the body deteriorates is not a result of a cruel father who enjoys watching his children's body deteriorate, but a loving father who invited his children to obey, and they chose to defy him. And when they defied him, even the creation and your body likewise suffers. Christianity, unlike other world religions, would never separate body and soul. It says both matter and both will be raised and restored to their fullness in perfect communion, not only with one another, but with the Father. And so other religions that would say body and soul don't matter come to a real problem at ground level where you and I live because you know that your body really does matter. You really do feel pain and heartache and grief. And so I wonder where you encountered this fallen world this week. Where do you feel it pressing in? 
Where have your burdens felt too heavy to carry? Where have you found trials that have no end in sight or sadness that has no relief? Where do you feel confusion and have no sense of clarity and loss? And you say, I don't even know if I could ever thrive again. Where do you experience weakness and disappointment and disillusionment? In those places, did you say in those moments, my Savior cares for me? Or did you just wonder if he does? Peter told this story to Mark. And Mark wrote it down so that you and I would know for sure that your Savior cares for every last detail that breaks your heart. And the longer, more beautiful story of the Bible is that God will not relent until all of the effects of the fall are ultimately defeated. And so you read a passage like this and you go, this nothing little story is actually ground level evidence that God climbed down into this miserable life to display his authority over it. To suffer not only with you, but more importantly, for you. So that in Christ, all of your suffering is actually redeemed. Ultimately, Jesus came not simply to relieve suffering in this life, but to suffer himself in your place. And yes, you and I still feel heartache in this fallen world. But it is because Christ suffered on the cross that we can be assured that even though our body dies, I will never ultimately suffer again. Ultimately, Jesus came not simply to lift up those who are sick, but to raise up all those who are united to him by faith as the first fruits who are following in his name. So that by being raised up, he secures a much more significant healing for you not simply over fevers but over sin and death so you see it here friends Jesus came to speak the simple gospel of hope to tear down the works of evil and then to lift up and redeem his suffering saints humble yourself under the authority of Christ let's pray Father we thank you for your word the great comfort and peace that we have here and I pray that you would give comfort to those who grieve that you would bind up the broken hearts and heal what is sick that you would give us not only a short term hope but the long term fact of healing in Christ and we ask that you would bless us now as we continue to worship even through the sacrament in Jesus name Amen.